No, there's like a, I think you can win the journalism award. A Pulitzer? Yes, I think you what? can win a Pulitzer for podcasting. So there's your goals. There's your future. There's your end game. So, Kendrick Lamar, we're coming for you. What are we talking about today? Space Force Sniff. Other than ASMRing <laughs> our catalog, our back catalog of things. Uh, we're going to talk about DevOps, I think. DevOps. What does DevOps mean? What does that stand for? Oh, man. It's a big thing. So, you know, there's like the the whole DevOps movement. There's that. There is. There's like, there's like a whole movement of... Uh, well, so let's like, you know, traditionally, what would be the person that would handle... Well, I guess I guess more generally is probably better what you were getting at. So, like you know, d- the idea of hosting your own software is where DevOps comes from. So, you know, you think fifteen years ago, did you have a hosting provider like Amazon Web Services that would just spin up a virtual cloud cluster for you? No, no you had a you had a beige compact under somebody's desk that somebody okay, used well, as a coaster. Maybe like twenty years ago, you had a compact Presario. I had one of those. Yeah, I think I did too. Or I had like a knockoff. I'm of pretty one. sure those like, existed. Those were being used very recently at a very large client that you and I both used to work on. That was always the joke. Is that? Oh wait, environment's down. Well, tell them to not put their coke on top of it next time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, back in the day, you used to have to. Let's just say not that far back, but you would have like an actual server room at your as your business. An actual room, like a room with air conditioning, super and loud, racks, loud. Hot. With little one U servers or two U servers back in the day. And then yep. each one of those servers would do something. And then maybe like, so don't quote me on timing. This is all before my day being a developer. But before, like maybe 15 years ago, I think, they created virtual clusters, vSphere clusters that you could run. vSphere. Wow. Taking it back. That's yeah. a throwback. We still have one at my office. What was Vs? What was uh, who ran vSphere? Was that an Oracle thing? I think it was Oracle, but don't quote me. But like one of those big companies, like that, it was either IBM. I mean, one of them created it. It was probably IBM because they created everything. Yeah. But basically, you would have one server. So you started with like you would have a single rack that had a one U unit, like your mixer thing there, the whatever that thing is called. The I'm pointing at it with disgust. That thing, that thing is a one U unit, right? So yes, you'd have one of those that's like. To you, and in it is an actual computer. So that was back in the day. You had one computer per purpose. And if you needed to host like a website, you would ask your IT department to order another 1U Dell server. Give me one of them blades. Bef- no, blades weren't even a thing. Then. What? Yeah, it was just like a 1U computer. Yeah, it had little handles on it. Yeah. Well, maybe back then they might not even have. They might have just been like that. But yeah, sooner or later they had cool handles on them and then they had blade servers. Blade servers are like an entire rack that is one custom built by... IBM or Dell or who I think they're they're blades or Dells right I don't know I thought blades were actual it's a concept, maybe I'm thinking right? of because they used to have a different form it, it's just form factor there it wasn't anything about the internals but they, I think they had like a casing that was for you or six you or something like that and had they had, they had these vertical yeah ones something like that yeah and, and inside of like it was twelve a, of them into like was, a four you yeah. space and each one of those was like, a like as the hardware got more power efficient and more powerful, you could fit more of them in the same amount of space. Yeah. So the concept of like a blade server or any kind of like 
thing like that is that there's some kind of like controller that's essentially like a KVM switch with a monitor on the front of the thing. And they have like these screens you can pull out. So one U is like one rack unit height. It's like an inch and a half, I think, is what that is. I don't know. Some It's in millimeters, whatever the it is. The individual, yes, yeah, the minimum unit. The minimum one unit. So you had one of those that would have like a screen in it, and then that screen would be able to switch between any of the servers in the blade or any of the servers in the rack, really. In the whole room. Well, probably in the singular rack. They had a screen per. And then you could open up that computer with a keyboard and a mouse, and you can control it, and it was like a Windows server or whatever, Linux, whatever it was. But you could control it right there in the room. So that was like... A long time ago. Because Windows had RDP, so you could do that too, but it was probably a little slower, so people would actually go in the server room, pull up the screen, pull up the keyboard, type directly on it, because you don't have that lag. Because, you know, we didn't have blazing fast internet forever. Nope. And then they would... Oh, my phone's on silent. Hold on. Ooh, my keyboards. My keys. Send my PayPal. Anyways. Yeah, so they would have these blades and you would control them and they were computers or whatever. I don't want to go down memory lane. So they had those. And then they created this thing called virtual computers. Like I think Oracle or IBM or one of those people did. And they would basically give you one computer that was really, really powerful that had firmware on it that would allow it to slice itself up into smaller computers. So you had infinite computers. So you had within reason. I mean you had to have like, so like you'd buy a vSphere cluster with X amount of computers. So you'd say, I need 64 gigs of RAM. Because it wasn't like the single motherboard was limiting the amount of RAM. It was like you were saying a blade. There'd be a bunch of computers and each computer would have a certain amount of RAM. They provide a certain amount of processors and a certain amount of uh, you know, RAM processors, whatever, power, all those things. And you would be able to divide that blade server however you wanted to. So you'd buy one that has... And inside of it, the whole purpose of virtual computers is that you don't really know internally, the, the amount of hardware that's in the unit is not representative of how many sharded computers there are. How many individual servers Individual there are. servers that are in there. So there could be, if you need, so say, when you're thinking about, let's just say hosting, not DevOps yet. If you're thinking about hosting, you need to know roughly how much compute power you need per server, per like website. So say you're running like 10 websites in this Blade server, each one of them, like you can run a website with like, I don't know, 256 megabytes of RAM if Ooh, it doesn't get a lot that. of traffic. I don't know about that. Back in the day, you could, if there was like one or two people. Back in the day, there wasn't JavaScript back in the day, though. Well, yeah, I mean, th- we're, not, we're not at DevOps yet. So <laughs> you would be able to run a server. With, I mean, you can run a modern Node application with, you know, 20 megabytes of RAM. Think what about is, it. Like, look at, look at your mean, Node just process. just bare server? Yeah, that's yeah. quite true. If you're running just a simple Node server that's doing... It's I mean, you're not going to be able to handle, yeah. like... It's not going to be able to handle millions of requests, but it can handle like one or two requests per second or whatever off 20, maybe 20 megabytes. I don't know. It depends what you're running. But the point is, you would have a certain amount of capacity that you needed to run said application. So you would say, you know, if this is a big corporate application, say it's Adobe AEM. That thing needs at least 8 gigs of RAM in a CentOS environment to run. At minimum, it needs like 8 gigs of RAM. Ideally, it'd be 16. So you would say, you know, I have to run for this corporation three instances of AEM. So maybe you would buy a 64 megabyte, or gigabyte rather, um, RAM four or six Xeon processor blade server. You divide it into the vSphere's and you'd say, well, each one of them can have a certain amount of RAM. They can have like a certain amount of processors and a certain amount of RAM. So if you ever installed VirtualBox on your computer, it's the same concept. 
That's built by Oracle, I'm pretty sure. You can look that up. I don't know. But either way, you go in there and you say, I want this thing to have one processor and you know, 1200, the maximum two gigabytes of RAM is typically what it does. But that, what VirtualBox does is it takes your Mac and makes it into a virtual machine. Yes. Was it Oracle? It's Oracle. Nice. I'm not going to look behind me. That's weird. I wouldn't do that. I mean, it's right there. Hold on while I look around. Awesome. Hey, look, look at what it's written in. What is it written in, Albert? Written in C, C++, and x86 assembly. Yeah, it was written 12 years ago. That was all that was around back then. All right, I'm not going to get back to that one. So anyways. You and the dinosaurs, man. I don't even know how to write C++ that well. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. So anyways, you had this thing and you divided it up. So the whole point is, back in the day, you had a vSphere cluster in your office in the thing. So you started with the individual servers. It was a pain in the butt because then you had to manage each server, each power consumption, each processor, whatever. Yeah, scale is hard. Scale is hard. So then you switch to a vSphere and then you say, okay, well now I have, if you're a big company, you can have like 15 vSphere's when you're in your office with 64 gigs of RAM each and each of them are like 100 grand. Scale is no longer hard. Scale is less hard, right? And then you get to the point where you're Netflix. How many servers do you think they'd have to run at their little office? Scale is well, hard huge again. Office. Scale, scale is very hard, hard again. again. So yeah, so this is what it's getting at, is that you have this concept of dividing a larger computer into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces. So then you get into modern hosting. Let's just not take one of the big names. Um, you have DigitalOcean. Say you're hosting on DigitalOcean. Or Linode, or one of those companies. And they'll have, you know, you can say, I want, at the cheapest, I want a $5 DigitalOcean box that will be probably, he's Googling it, probably two gigs of RAM and one, what they call a vCPU. It'll be a virtual CPU. Because it's not actually, they're not giving you a processor. It's not a slice of a Xeon, it's... Yeah, well, it is a slice of a Xeon. It's, 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 virtual. Slice, it's a virtual slice It's like Xeon. one it's core a on a Xeon. Or, you know, less than one core. We're looking up the sizes, but it's like... So do like Ubuntu or predictable view pricing. So, you know, they'll give you, there it is, one gigabyte of RAM, one vCPU, 25 gigs of SSD space, one terabyte of transfer per month for $5 a month at $0.007 an hour, cents an hour. That's a pretty robust it is server for that amount of money because I think that that same money at, at Linode gets you maybe half that. No, Linode is. They're very competitive with each other. Linode, it's a, I think it's a gig of RAM, one vCPU. You might get less SSD space. I don't know, but the, Linode uses only um, SS, like really powerful SSDs. Yeah, that's like their thing. Does too. Yeah, so they're very competitive with each other. But the point is, you get one of those servers. But what do you think they're running back there? They're probably not running a bunch of vSphere clusters. What they're running is. Tons and 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 tons of Linux computers with cores, yeah, with tons of multi-core Xeons, twenty-four core Xeons, a rack full of SSD drives. You know, like a little room, like a little building, well, a whole building, several whole buildings, several whole buildings. So then, floor-to-ceiling racks just full, yeah, just full of servers, and they're just running air conditioning. They do all the things that you would have to do. So, like my brother works for a company that is military-related, and well, he used to work for a company that was military-related, and he used to requisition the racks. So he would have to say, like, I need a rack with air conditioning and this many use of units with this many servers, and he would order it from the company. And be able to handle, like, 200,000 watts and, or something like that. Yeah, because they can't run on a cloud because of government reasons. They would have these, these servers in their rack, and he would maintain them. Well, he would purchase them, and then someone else would maintain them. 
So you'd be like, this project needs this server, but it's there delivered, right? So they still do that in like government stuff. Yeah. So in comes, you know, 20, where are we at in 2019? In 2019, we're in a very, very interesting place because oh, tell us, tell us you have it. this situation where you have DigitalOcean, you have Linode, you have tons of other providers, Rackspace, and then you have a couple big ones. You probably heard of them. Amazon Web Services, Google Compute Cluster, Google Compute, what do they call Google Compute Cloud, I think. GCC. Google Cloud Compute. Yeah, something like that. And then you have the other big one is Azure. Yeah. So these things are not just a hosting platform. So DigitalOcean started with just servers. They had droplets and they had load balancers. So a load balancer is something that you put, the name is pretty indicative of what it is, but you put this thing in front of a group of servers and you can say, I want from DigitalOcean, I say I have like a website that's going to get, I don't know, you, you figure out the amount of traffic per and you say, I can run this for... So you have to make this decision. I, I say I have $15 a month to run a website, right? I can go to this list and I can get a three gigabyte, one vCPU with 60 gigs of space and the three terabyte transfer single droplet for $15 a month. But what happens if that droplet goes down? Oh no. Your whole site's gone. Gone, it's done. So the other thing you can do is if you know your application can run within one gig of RAM, one vCPU and only you know each one of them when round robin load balance is going to transfer the same amount of... See how those numbers are very equal? One terabyte, three terabytes. You can get three of them for 15. It's basically three of those together. Except you get more hard drive space. Less, actually. Because it's 25 times three would be 75. And you get 60 gigs. As long as your app is less than that, you should be fine. Which, I mean... Unless you, what, 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 app? what app on the planet Earth? <laughs> yeah. What app are you running on DigitalOcean off of six... That's a lot of space. Even 25 gigs. That's a lot of space. Listeners, I mean, let us know. If you're running an app... For $5 a month. If you're running an app that takes up 25 gigs of hard drive space on a virtual server, let us know. We want to hear the story. Yeah, maybe you... Some old, really old WordPress sites could potentially have that much... 25 gigs? Uh, There was a website I worked on at my company that had two gigs of hard drive space on a very... Two gigs of images in the the WordPress dam for, you know, maybe four years of development. Because they just... People just upload assets all the time. Like, oh, that asset's wrong. Upload another one. We're not even going to get into that. It's a different story. So anyways... You can have a lot of space, yeah, but you're probably never going to use that much space. A lot of it is dedicated to the OS. Some of it's dedicated to updates. Some of it's dedicated to code. Some of it's dedicated to Apache or Nginx. But you know, all that stuff, probably not that much mm. space. So anyways, and so if you wanted to have a load balancer, you could have three of those one gigabyte, one vCPU, whatever servers backed by a load balancer. And then what the load balancer does is it says, you know, I'm going to send 25% or 33% of my traffic to box A, 33% to box B, 33% to box C. If it's really, if it's at 100%, that's what it'll do. Really what it's going to do is it's going to say, I get the first request, it goes to A. I get the second request, it goes to B. I get the third request, it goes to C. The other responsibility of a load balancer is, say the server behind the load balancer stops responding. Load balancers will automatically remove it from its pool. And they'll say, now I have two servers. One's broken. And maybe they'll send you an email and be like, hey, one of your servers is not responding on the load balancer. And then you know you have a problem, right? So who, in this micro example, who knows it has a problem? Who's watching it? Who's on PagerDuty? Who's on page? Where does PagerDuty even come from? Where does that concept? Who's got the pager? Who's got the pager? Who even says who has the pager and who 
So really what it is, is if you go back years and years ago, it would be the IT department would be saying, the business managers would say to the IT department, you keep these servers running, you make sure they work really well, and we'll pay you for it. And then they would make sure they don't go down. If they go down, they would let you know. They'd be like, it's going to be back up. But what happens if, imagine a world in which you run an e-commerce site and your site goes down. Costs you money. It's literally costing you money by the second. Literal money coming out of your pocket. If assuming, let's just assume that this e-commerce site sells a lot of products. You don't even have to sell a lot of products. You have a conversion rate of... Sure, you always are losing money. You're always losing money, yeah. In theory, you're always losing money. But if you're losing less money, it's okay if it's down for an hour. But if if your site in a given day, say you're an international website that's selling 24 hours a day. I have a better better example. Mm -hmm. Say you're the status page for AWS. Mm, Yeah. That's got to be up. That's got to be up. That's got to that has that has to be up more than AWS does. Than AWS itself, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, how do you know if AWS is up? That I mean, I'm sure their status page could survive a nuclear holocaust. I don't know about that because it went down. <sighs> okay, whatever, fine. Because <laughs> the the status page because <laughs> AWS was down in certain regions and the status page was running on AWS, so the AWS status page said everything was fine. And I was like, I can't hit my site. All right, well, this is a very good example because good it example. leads into something bigger. So anyways, I'll talk about that in a second. But imagine this world where you have one website running on DigitalOcean with three servers and an ELB. We already explained what ELBs do, right? We're, work, we're working our say well ourselves out to a bigger app, right? So imagine that happens. In that size website, most likely the person that is going to be responsible for the site being up is your Webmaster, which is like a term that it's no such one's an ancient term. It is that's the person. That's I literally haven't heard of that term since like the nineties. Well, that's the thing. That's the person that would do that. They would be the the master of the webs, and they would maintain. What is what exactly is a webmaster in twenty nineteen though? That's what we're getting at. Okay. So, anyways, you can say you know I have a smaller website. Say okay, let's just say that you're running a mom and pop shop that sells pies. Pies. Well, pies don't really ship well. Say you are a mom and pop shop that w- makes guitar strings. Fine. Because w- you have a guitar right there. Widgets. Guitars. I like guitars. guitars. It's right there. So you're making guitar strings. So you work for a company that makes guitar strings and you sell them online. So I'm not going to get into how that business would run because most likely a company that's making stuff is not a tech company, right? So you're going to have a factory. You're going to have someone, make, tons of people making guitar strings all day, cataloging them, creating the you know, the ordering sheets and maintaining orders, all these things. The job of the website is to be an additional place to sell these strings because they're probably selling them in bulk to someone else in stores and stuff. But then they also have this portal where you can buy directly from them. And then the website lets you know, you know, who bought what and where to ship it to. If that website goes down and you're making maybe a thousand sales a day on this website, if it's down for an hour, the odds are you probably lost 10% of those sales because they're most likely in your region, in your time zone, you know, maybe they're happening all at one time. Let's not get into that. Say they happen evenly throughout a day and it goes down from 9 to 10 a.m. right before your lazy webmaster gets in and realizes it's down. You just lost 100 sales, theoretically. This is what they always say. We lost 100 sales. The person who wants the strings is probably going to come back. They like your strings. But let's just say you lost those sales. That's important because you just lost, say they're 10 bucks a piece. You lost, math guy, 100 sales. Ten bucks a piece is thousand dollars. Thousand dollars is a lot of money. It's more money than it costs to host a website. Website's fifteen dollars a month. You just lost a thousand dollars in one hour. Oh man! So what you're what I'm leaning to is would you run that store on a site that's fifteen dollars in a month? 
You're saying there should be more investment in this There should be more investment in this cloud infrastructure than just that. Now, I'm not bagging on DigitalOcean because they basically never go down. They're a great provider. They rarely ever go down. But, you know, you might run it on more servers. You might be multi-cloud. You might say, you know, at the DNS level, I have, you know, 10 servers on Linode of the same website. In different locations. And in different locations. Different providers. All the way around the world. I have one in DigitalOcean. This is much more extreme than, you know, this is probably two steps out. But say you had, you know, five instances of your store on Linode and you have five instances of your store on DigitalOcean. So if DigitalOcean ever goes down, Linode's still up. Yep. If Linode goes down, DigitalOcean's still up. If either both of them are up, great, you have 10 servers. So that is DevOps. The person who is responsible for making sure that that highly available cloud architecture is available is someone who is called a DevOps engineer. So that's where that comes from. It's amazing. Thank you for that oral history, Greg. Yeah, so getting into the cooler stuff. So nowadays, DevOps engineers are not only responsible for single servers and ELBs. You have other stuff. Whoa, like what? Tell me more, Greg. DNS. Oh. You have uh, Lambda functions. You have cloud functions. What are these, what are these uh, caches out here? You have caching. Yep. You have Elasticache, Redis. You have actual CDNs. And you have HAProxy, which is, a, which is basically a load balancer, an F4 load balancer, I think. It's a term. There's different levels of there's different levels of responsibility for a load balancer depending on how high in the network topology it is. Oh man. There's F1, F2, F3, F4, F5, whatever. Which by the way, speaking of F5, F5 is a company and they just bought Nginx. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. So and Not Nginx good. is well, I don't know. Nginx well, F5 apparently I read about this today. <clears throat> yeah. F F5's claim to fame is that their buggy code that they committed uh, is the reason why TLS 1.0 is insecure now. Huh. Well, that could be just one thing they did. Maybe. But anyways, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's these big companies that maintain different aspects of the cloud architecture and, you know, they may have done that one part. But yeah, so also security, TLS, that's another thing a DevOps person would have to worry Mm -hmm. about. Now, back in the day, you would just go to GoDaddy and you'd be like, I need a domain. We got albertsguitarstrings.com and... Good guitar strings, better buy those. Yeah, it doesn't exist. Hopefully, it doesn't exist. And then you have you would buy an SSL cert. Yep. Often from Symantec, which you know Google has invalidated Symantec certs recently. <laughs> so there's that. But you would buy like a very expensive cert from Symantec, or you'd buy a cheaper cert from GoDaddy. You'd buy a domain name, and then that's about the most. Most business people will stop at buying the domain because that's the last part of the hosting and infrastructure situation that affects their brand image. Yeah, that's the, that's also the extent of what they understand. What's well, all? I mean, to be honest, do they have to care? I mean, the only part they care about is their brand image. What is the domain, and is it secure enough for people to buy crap off my website? Does it have an SSL? Is something that Google tells me I have to do? Stripe requires me to have it in order to buy stuff, so I have an SSL and I have a domain. Done. Well, Web I think you, I think you bring up a point there, though, is that it's very easy for the person who's in charge of the business to have their knowledge stop there. Mm-hmm. Until the site goes down. Yeah, and that's where you have... So if you have a technology-focused company, your organizational structure will include a CTO, a chief technical officer. Or someone of similar level and influence in the company. Yeah, but I mean, if you're, a tech, if you're an actual tech company, you're probably going to have a CTO, and that CTO's responsibility is to translate business rules, business requirements, business uh, KPIs into technology. 
So it's no longer an IT department's responsibility to maintain your infrastructure. It is a CTO's responsibility to find the right technologies for your business. Yeah, because the technology itself is not the hard path anymore. No. It, scale is no longer hard. As and who... All right, so it's, let's, one, it's no longer hard, and two, it's no longer expensive. So yeah. the responsibility falls on the CTO and the company to build a robust infrastructure yep. around their DevOps. And if big high up businessman doesn't understand that well they will when the site goes on you lose sir, you lose yeah. sales yeah and so you know there are other companies that have very very big stock ticker prices that have come around and kind of filled in this gap of where do we so DigitalOcean is great not going to bag on them neither with Linode they're both amazing for certain kinds of sites but imagine that you have to host uh, like a really big brand website let's just make one up mercedes.com you're gonna go to you're gonna go to DigitalOcean or Linode? Probably not. They're oh, probably hosted on something like Amazon Web Services. So then you get into the big boys and they come in and they say, you know, Amazon's whole entire business was structured around dividing the responsibilities of each team into a smaller and smaller and smaller product. So when they created Amazon.com, they started with the saying that I've heard recently, because there's a lot of profiles around Bezos these days, but the saying is that he started with not a concept that he wanted to sell books, but that he wanted to sell things online. He wanted to own online sales. And books was the easiest thing to get. And in. books was the easiest thing to do. Is the whoa, something just happened. Hold on. Fixed. Well, it's a cord. Give me wireless headphones, but then there'd be delay. So, anyways, um, yeah, so he, he wanted to sell things online, and books was the easiest thing because they don't go bad. You know, they don't. They're the same. They're the same skews. A book is a book. And then he went to CDs and DVDs because they're kind of similar to books. And then he moved on to everything. Now he's doing food and all these kind of things, but whatever. The whole point is they went in and they said, how do we host our online store to be available in every single country in the world on infrastructure that's close enough to those people that they can actually buy things with us? Because we've talked in the past about how much page speed influences how much you sell. Yes. They're one of the biggest people that pioneered that research. Yeah, the location is a huge part of that. Actual yeah. physical geographic location, closeness to the actual person who's accessing the actual site. It's yeah, a huge for, for buying things because it's faster and also for delivery of things, which is yes. why they have min, like little miniature factories ever, warehouses everywhere that ship things very quickly near the person. Yes. Because speed at which you can deliver it is another one of their key business indicators of why they sell stuff. So either way, they took this concept of selling things online and they essentially invented what would become Amazon Web Services. But instead of building it in a way where it's very conducive or directly related to their business, they created it in a way that by default it could be reused. Well, isn't, wasn't that part of... That was one of their goals though as well, right? They wanted to be able to scale it. Yeah, they wanted to be able to scale it. So they took... All of that knowledge that we just talked about, about having servers, having co-located spaces, having different applications run on servers near the user, and they essentially created a network of what they call availability zones. Yes. So one of the big things in Amazon Web Services is availability zones. So you have US East 1, and then you have US West 1, West 2, US, uh, basically there's a couple in Texas. It's really cute that you know the names of these, that you're in these, you're in these boxes so often every single day that you know the names. Like US yeah. East just sounds not like one of your cousins. Sorry, that's not actually an availability. There's, there's also availability zones. So there are 
what do they call them? The the regions. So it's the very, regions. It's very easy to get those mixed up. <laughs> yeah. So there's so what they do to get like at the actual topology of how they build their buildings or their spaces, they'll buy a ton of land and they'll say, this is now the Amazon Web Services US East 2 or 3, let's say they're building a new one, 3 region and it's on the East Coast, but it's not in Virginia where East 1 and 2 are. It's and the say, NSA. <laughs> literally right next door. It's in... May or may not be in the same building. <laughs> may or may not be connected to each other. Who knows? I'm, I don't know. So they, maybe they're building it in Florida. Say so they want one in Florida for some reason. So they build one in Florida, right? Um, what they'll do is they'll buy a big plot of land and they'll build a humongous building, huge building, very big, very, very, very big, doing the hand motions, very big building. Bigly. And they'll put inside of it a bunch of separate buildings, separate disconnected things, maybe in the same building or maybe in different buildings. I don't know. I don't work for them, but... Basically, different buildings that are powered by their own grid. They get their own grid from the world, from the electricity peoples. They don't all come through the same power. They come through different locations uh, from different wires or whatever, as best as they can, I think. And they get their own T1, or well, not T1, wow, T1. They get their own fiber connection to the internet individually. Oh, yeah, like hard, like hard fiber, like crazy oh, yeah, fiber. Just like needle straight to the vein kind of. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, we're joking about it being in Virginia, but that is not actually the reason why it's in Virginia. That's because, well, because of the NSA. That is where the main backbone of the internet is that goes to the West Coast and Europe is in Virginia. Yes, the NSA. It's not actually the NSA, but it's near there. Department um, of Defense. Well, they invented the internet, so the, yeah, the it Pentagon. probably would be there. Uh, either way, so they have that, right? So basically, these buildings, these availability zones are separated in power, in cooling, in electricity, well, electricity is power, <laughs> power, cooling, and internet connection, essentially. There's probably other things that, you know, make them that way. Well, you're, you're at that point, the levels of redundancy, redundancy that you're thinking about are huge scale problems, right? You're talking about resistance to fire, flooding, mm-hmm. storms, acts of God, earthquakes. Yeah. Climate change, erosion, hurricanes. In certain parts of the country, pig lagoons, pig sure. waste, things like that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so making sure that nobody can <laughs> mission impossible their way into your thing and see all your, see all your stuff. It's a hard problem. Yeah. But they do it. So they basically create these lo- like located near each other and they have essentially a fiber connection between them. So what they call them, so they'll say the region US East 3, we're imagining, has different availability zones. They'll have A, B, C, and D. So you'll have US East 3A, B, C, and D. What those are is they're completely different, essentially completely different network, completely different infrastructure situations. What do they call there? Completely different... Like ecosystems. Ecosystems. And if one goes down, the other one will remain up. Yeah, they're all, they're all kind of redundant copies of themselves. Yeah. Not necessarily copies. They're different enough to where they're kind of backups for each other. Maybe that's the way you say it. They're yeah. backups for each other in, in, in the event that a hurricane throws an entire pig lagoon's worth of pig waste into totally, a building. Totally, totally. I mean, in some of the parts of the country there in this article that I just Googled just now, that's actually a thing. South Carolina? Yeah, absolutely. Texas? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe not Virginia necessarily. All right, we're not going to talk about pig lagoons the whole time. So anyways, it's, it's, it's a, a long-winded way. Saying. I know, I know, but it's a long-winded way of explaining about. how infrastructure works. So anyways... 
You have these availability zones. Now, why am I explaining this in detail? Because that is one of the number one things about Amazon Web Services is that you can create databases, for instance. You can create uh, a database that is triple redundant in three availability zones if you want to pay for it. So you can say, I want to have uh, a cluster. Uh, um, what do they call their database? I always forget. Uh, R- well, it's RDS, but the, they have a certain name for it. But is whatever. this the one they stole from Mongo or the other one? No, this is the SQL one that they built. It's like Aurora. It's Aurora, my SQL Aurora. So anyways, they have their own database situation for SQL that is easily divided among their kind of infrastructure. But the point is they built this highly available, highly resilient, cl- clustered database that you don't have to worry about things like anybody who's listening who's ever dealt with MySQL uh, sync up tables, like the actual text files that keep two databases in sync, you don't have to do that anymore. It's no. amazing. But that was something you had to do back in the day. Um, so they'll create these databases that you can put one, they actually require that a cluster is in two availability zones. Two separate availability zones. Yeah, I think you can, you can, if you want to save money, you can turn off one of them, but they don't recommend it. They, they require you to put, there's, a, there's basically a master that you don't, I think they might, they probably, they bill you for everything, but they, they might bill you for it, but there's a master and then there's slave ones that are in different availability zones. But they're, it's not, you don't save enough money for it to be worth it. Well, you do because well, that's what that's the other thing about Amazon is that when you when you create literally anything that is EC2 based, which is instance based, which RDS. So, all right. So this is the other thing about Amazon is that they'll start by creating something like EC2, which is the second version of their Elastic Compute service. That's why it's EC2. There was an EC1, I guess, at one point in time. I don't know. Now they have two. So EC2 is a model that they've built around building vSphere systems and they build their own custom racks that they have. They have their own hardware. So Amazon, Google, and Microsoft are really big on making, and Facebook too, are really big on making their own hardware. So they have their own servers, they have their own stuff. They might use Intel Xeon processors and all the same stuff, but they build them. Facebook is really big at building networking tools. So they build switches and routers and all kinds of stuff that they use. Amazon builds compute stuff, they build everything. So the point is they they will um, they will build the EC2 service and then they'll say, okay, so we're going to use the same EC2 servers to build RDS. But what is RDS? The relational database service? What is that? It is a set of three, usually, EC2 instances that work together as a service to create you a database. As one. As one. They work together as one to create a database for com. How many RDS instances should I be using? Probably just one, I would think, with availability zones. I mean, you're just if you're a simple website... I got a lot of strings, Greg. I'm selling a lot of strings. Yeah, but I mean... Whatever. So, you can, you can do... So, the thing about it is that you can pick an RDS cluster that uses very similar-sized servers. So, let's say a DB1 or a DB medium or a DB small, DB large, DB extra small. And they have these, like relatively easily understood size classes of servers. So you'll say, you know, I need a RDS cluster with two DB smalls. Might cost you 100 bucks a month for a database. Might cost you even less. And they have a free tier, and there's lots of things that they do. But the point is, you can run a very, very small, very infrequently, or not very, but relatively infrequently requested database for relatively cheap on Amazon, which is why they're so popular. Way way cheaper than you would have had than you would have been able to back in the day when you were managing your own racks. Oh yeah, in this room in your building. 
yeah. with air conditioning. And the other things that they do is like Aurora, the whole system they have around Aurora ties directly into their admin tools. So there's constantly data being plucked off of these servers to figure out compute size for a database, how many open connections there are, you know, what is the read-write rate, is it clogged in writing things. You know, they have the ability to create multiple read servers but one write, but you just write to the master and the master figures out which is the read and the write. So you always just say, hey, master, give me some data. And then it goes, well, the master domain, the master URL, and uh, which is basically either an IP or a URL. And the thing that does that is um, Route 53, which is their DNS provider. So they basically, what I'm getting is they take all these tools and they bundle them up into a mishmash of different services to create a new service. But it's like a one-stop shop now. Yeah. So now you've got... You've got everything you need. So... You got cereal, you got motor oil, you got rubber gloves. I usually merge those two things together. Uh, You got ice cream. uh, You take a lot with these analogies. You just keep trash bags. Yeah, trash bags, totally. It's a supermarket. It's the supermarket of ops. Yeah. So, but imagine, let's just take RDS, for instance. So, RDS, obviously, we already talked about it, uses EC2 for the actual servers. It uses um, Route 53 for the domain names. And it also uses their equivalent of Elastic Cache for storing um, stats data. And it uses their, their um, queue system for giving you notifications and their notification service, which is SNS. So it essentially internally uses SNS, which is notifications. Hey, your database is down, sends you a text. You can do all that straight in Amazon. Hey, your database is down, send you an email. They can do that too. Um, it uses the queuing server or essentially like their data stream system for like analytics system to know like what is the amount of open connections it uses that so we're already at like five services that one of their services uses but all five of those services are subservices of the same service and you can use them individually if you and want you can to. use them individually if you want to so that's that is what the modern cloud looks like and they have on amazon they have servers they have databases they have redis clusters with elastic cache they have memcached clusters they have load balancers, they have d- domains, they have security and compliance tools. They have 57 services. They have a lot of services. Including analytics, they have an equivalent of like Kafka. You can do you can run like Kinesis streams, which are essentially Kafka for like capturing live data and funneling it through something that you can read on the other end. Oh man. They have everything. So much. Analytics, whatever. S3 is another big one. S3 is dope. Which is a blob store, an object store. We like S3. Yeah, so it stores, essentially stores data at URLs in reality. But those URLs are just folders. And then at that is a blob. And they store everything in some kind of database store. They're not storing it on flat files. They're storing it in some kind of... That's why S3 is so fast. Because in the interim while it's writing the file, it may very well be a piece of cache. And then it gets written to a database. Or to like an actual file. Or a database, and then they can extract the file from it. So it's always there. So it's always there. And they have like things like Amazon Glacier, which is like forever storage. Oh. They have Amazon S3. They have several levels of S3 availability. Infrequently accessed is cheaper, but you can only access it like, you know, within a certain amount of milliseconds or seconds. They have have tons of services. But the point is, what I'm getting at, what I'm kind of trying to explain is there's a lot. There's a lot of things you have to do nowadays to run a website. But then again, if you're running a website, like a modern website, it's possible that you do have caching, 
because you probably want a stateless website. So you're probably, you know, you're not storing your, you're either storing your user session on their computer in a cookie, in a big bad cookie, which, you know, there's a lot of problems with, you know, GDPR compliance around cookies now, but you're storing something in a cookie or you're storing whatever they're doing on your website on the back end. So let's just think like Laravel, which is a PHP service. You can either, you can use like one of four caching systems for the user's session. Because sessions, I think, are like the lowest level caching thing that people have to deal with. Or the highest level caching thing that most web developers will have to deal with. Yeah. So you say you'll have on the client's cookie, you can have on the server in memory, you can have on the file storage of the server, which you probably don't want to do if you have 15 of them. You can have on Redis, you can have on... Elasticash, like on Amazon Elasticash, you can have, there's other, there's tons of them. There's IronMQ, I think is another one. That's a queuing server. But there's basically like different ways to handle two-story caches, right? You can store it in a database, actually in SQL, slower, I don't know, maybe pollutes your database with a lot of extra stuff. And caches usually, client caches usually don't need to last forever, but you can do it. So the whole point is, you have to manage that. You have to manage hosting the server. You have to manage making sure it's up and available and in multi-regions and well if it's available across the entire world you probably need a CDN which Amazon has yep in CloudFront you know they have all these services so the modern person who is maintaining your website is probably not just asking IT for a single server they're dealing with a bunch of concepts because they're not really real things you know the EC yes of course the EC2 servers eventually are servers but they're really not. They're a concept. You There's have, a bunch of stuff around them that it doesn't work without. Yeah. And is not a specific service. Like, you have a server and things go on it. Like, load balancing is not a concept like that. Yeah. It's much more abstract in the sense that if this happens, then do this. But you're not actually saying, put this file with some code on it on the server and just let it run. It's, it's completely different. But all those things are related. I agree with you. Yeah. So like you're typically when you think about a server, if you so you were to say, let's just say, I want to go to Amazon today and I want to ask for a server. What 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 acts like a duck is probably a duck. Like what they're gonna give you is something you can SSH into using a PEM key, which is a essentially an SSH key. You can SSH into it using the PEM key, you can install Apache on it, and then you can ask for the website that's on port eighty and you'll have a website. Right? But is there really a server somewhere? Probably not. You know, you can you can ask for temporary servers if you want to save money. You want to pay, you know, point zero four hourly cents. or something. Yeah, you can pay hourly for an ephemeral server that just goes away when someone else someone else paid for the contract and they don't need it anymore. They sell it back to Amazon, and then Amazon's like, you can have it for four hours. There you go. This is a server. If it's a big one, it might cost less than it usually would. Maybe you run your artificial intelligence computing on that. Maybe you run your analytics process. Maybe you run some kind of batch process at night to figure out how many guitar strings you sold. Oh man. So. It's pretty big and it's a lot of things. That is what DevOps essentially is. Now, if you look at the overloaded term, I think that's enough about servers and infrastructure because I can go on forever. I love, yeah. I love DevOps. I think the, the other interesting question that comes up here is what is not DevOps? Mm. I mean, uh, this is the thing is that nowadays people that deal with this kind of infrastructure are mostly always, if you're, if you're doing it and you're doing it well and people that really enjoy their jobs 
As DevOps people are actually DevOps people. They're not IT. They're not coders. They may be the same people from IT, but they've learned a lot of new skills and now they're DevOps people. Yeah, they're not writing CSS. Probably not, but they are writing code. That's they're writing the code. I, yeah. I misspoke there. They are writing code. They're but not, they're not writing, writing front-end code. web code necessarily. Yeah. So the, the DevOps movement is several things. It's a movement more towards... So it's, there's also the overloaded term of like, what is the high level? What is DevOps? If you Googled it right now. Oh, it's all the stuff. It's all the things. It's a methodology. It's like, I'm agile. I do things agile-like at our business. What is the most agile way that you can host crap in the modern world? It's not buying servers and putting them in a rack. No, absolutely not. It's using Amazon Web Services. Renting something that's already built for you. Yeah, so you can run a pretty big website on Amazon for under $500. Yes. Depending on the traffic. The thing about Amazon is everything scales with how much traffic you have. But if you have a million users on it, you're going to pay more money. But it's it's cheap enough to where it makes sense. It's cheap enough that a startup can run a fairly complicated application with queuing systems, analytics processing pipelines, an actual website, maybe an API, some load balancers, and a database thrown in there for fun. You can run all that for probably, depending on the size and the amount of traffic, you could run all of those things for under $500. Yeah, it's very When cheap. in the world in the past could you have done You've that? You've never been able to do that. That's the thing. This is kind of the golden age of that stuff because not only have you not ever had more options, it's also, you've had, you've had more flexibility, it's cheaper, there's more things that do a lot more things for you. Mm-hmm. And so the role now of, of a DevOps person is less just managing the basics and more scaling features and yeah. doing more things with the amount of resources that you have. So it is, it is a completely different role these days and is definitely different from what quote-unquote IT people used to do. Yeah, and not to bash on them because a lot of them are now learning these concepts and are DevOps practitioners. But the idea of modern DevOps is you have the scalability of your system, whatever that system is and however it's being run. And there's also Lambda, which is another thing we can talk about after. It's kind of fun. It's a newer thing, but within two years newer, but two, three, whatever it is. But you have the idea of you need this thing to scale. So it needs to be scalable, available, so that it's available in different regions. It needs to be, mon- you need to be able to monitor it. You need to be able to say, hey, is my application actually working? You need a bird's eye view of your system. Is, is my website responding? You need to be able to say, hey, well, is the CDN having a bunch of 500 errors? Is it being logged somewhere? Do I know why? Can I clear it when I need to? Can I clear the CDN? Well, even further than that, if you really think about what DevOps people really push for, do I need to clear the CDN for my business people? Or should my, when they publish something to their CMS and approve it, that should be automated. And validate it, should that automatically clear the CDN? Yes. So would yeah. you say setting that sort of thing up is also part of DevOps or no? Well, yeah, it's everything. Going back to like tooling we were talking about a while ago, DevOps is literally anything related to the deployment of your code, the actual hosting of your, your applications of any kind, and the monitoring of them, making sure they stay up, they're debuggable. It's a very wide-ranging thing. Yes, and it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It does range all the way to the tooling or say your actual web developer who's writing CSS all the way to scaling servers and all that kind of stuff. The stuff with the servers and setting up infrastructure has gotten so good and easy these days is that it also 
course, everything goes back to Gatsby with us, but it kind of goes back to that setup with Gatsby, right? You've got your front end framework. You're consuming some sort of headless CMS, which is kind of the, if you really think about it, that's kind of the end game of DevOps. It's, it's, you kind of had this one click, universally accepted standard of how to get some sort of back end setup that anybody can use on the front end. And it's stupidly easy to set up. You know, 10 years ago, it would cost hundreds of dollars, taking way longer and taking a lot more specialty. But nowadays, people who aren't DevOps specialists can set that stuff up very easily and very quickly and very cheaply. So it's, it's a good time to be a DevOps person, I think. It is. But the only, you know, there, there is a little bit to consider like with, with that. So let's go to like serverless, for instance. What is serverless? Serverless is the concept that your infrastructure can be just a function you put in a computing system on the cloud, like Lambda, Amazon Lambda is one of them, or you know, there's, um, there's, there's Google Cloud Functions, there's Azure Cloud Functions. There's basically all the big providers have. There's an IBM OpenWhisk, there's tons of them. There's like all these different things that you can do to host little functions of code, right? So the, the, the basic, basics about Lambda, let's just take Lambda because it's easier to talk about. The, the basics of Lambda is that you have a maximum amount of time that your function can run. It's pretty high. It's like 10 minutes. 10, I think it's like 10 minutes that it can run. But it can't run any longer than that. And you can set the threshold lower so that it fails quicker because is the more time that it's running, the more it costs you. So it's oh. per request, and I think it might also be per total length of the request if it's above a certain threshold. But let's just say you know it's per request. So you get something like a million requests for free per month. On a Lambda function. But if you think about it... That's a lot. It is, but think about it. If you have... That's if, if you're building an API and you don't cache your API requests, which Gatsby does naturally with the way that it gets data using GraphQL and embeds it into the page, you're paying per request one way or another. So if you think about Contentful or any of these provided CMSs or... Any of these services, uh, Auth0, all of them, you're paying either for the, like in Auth0's case, you pay for the amount of users you have in your database table. So it's an easy way for them to do pricing. You have 10,000 users. It's this much money, right? With, at, with uh, Lambda, it's by request. So you start to think like, you have to map out this system when you're planning these things out and you say, how many requests do I expect to get in a, in a month? And then you do some really loose math where you're like, well, divide that by 31 days by eight hours a day where it's peak usage. And then you figure out what is the maximum amount of requests I'm going to have in a given day at a certain time. And then you can kind of know your costs. You can guess it. Traffic goes up, you pay more. But generally with a business, when traffic goes up, you're selling more guitar strings, hopefully, if you're converting people. And that's where business people come in and they say, what is our conversion rate? That's where that comes from. So you say like, you know, we have 5,000 people on the site, only four buy guitar strings. Well, we're paying a lot of money to host that website and no one's buying guitar strings. It's not worth it because we have 5,000 people per month or whatever, which requires maybe 250 to $500 a month and you only sold four guitar strings. You made 60 bucks. It's not good. It's not good. You're paying more money than you are getting out of it. So conversion rates are important. That's when you start getting into front-end stuff and people wondering what's the best way to sell guitar strings. Are they actually desirable? Whatever, whatever, whatever. Right. Coupons. Always B- about the coupons. Business things that we don't know about. Always about, about the coupons and affiliated codes. But anyways, 
that's where that comes from. So, you know, you're paying per request. So you have to think about how, and with the convenience of not having to run a server, there's a cost. So generally, platforms as a service, the passes of the world like Auth0, are going to cost more the more people you have. Now, if you're Albert's Guitar Strings, it's probably okay to support less than 1,000 users who have accounts on your guitar site. But if you get 5,000 people to sign up for an account and you're not converting all of those people, you're paying Auth0 a dollar per month per user. I don't know what the money is. Let's just say it's 20, 12 cents per user or something like that. Yeah, there's a, there's a cost per user. There's a cost per user, which is why startups always worry about what is your cost of acquiring your user. Acquisition, acquisition cost. cost of user, yeah. And, and the technology matters. So like as a CTO, you're saying... You know, our entire infrastructure system could cost, you know, for instance, Netflix pays million, hundreds of millions of dollars to Amazon per month. But it's run. worth it for them. But it's worth it for them because they're making twelve ninety nine a month per user. So maybe it costs, uh, I don't know what they're... I don't yeah, know what the they're math like. is going to be different the math for is every, work. every business. It's going to work for them. You, yeah. you do have to think about, and you're, you bring up a good point about the acquisition cost per user is that that's a huge metric for startups. Yeah. That's a really, really important thing, especially for investors who are looking. They, they want to know exactly how much it costs to get revenue back. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those companies are at a small enough scale to where these small changes in your infrastructure and your DevOps systems can make a big impact there Yeah, in terms of more conversions or getting more people on the site. So and selling more. Selling these more are strings. these problems are not just necessarily technological problems. They're not code monkey problems. They are business problems. Yeah, and I think it's important to think about these in those terms when you are say talking to your boss about why you need a load balancer. Say talking to your boss about why you need to be able to bump that AWS budget up a little bit. Right? These are things that will help drive sales, help convert more sales, help retain customers, things like that. Those are the some points you want to think about when you're talking about infrastructure stuff. Yeah. So, you know, it's pretty important from the aspect of like what the technology people are doing, what the business people are doing. It's just important all around. And also some of the things in the DevOps movement can change the entire way that you code stuff, that you code software. So Docker is something that came out of the DevOps. It came out of a concept that Google invented, but Google's been practicing DevOps for the past 10 years. They have this where a lot of these concepts come from are these big companies that create really gigantic systems that necessitate these kinds of organizational structures that lead to smaller teams. You know, the ability for like self service environments is something you hear a lot in DevOps. Like, can a marketing team, let's not say a marketer, but like a marketing team that maybe has a dedicated developer, can they spin up an entire stack of services to run a new product at your business without asking you. If you get to a big enough point, that might be something that's valuable to you. Yes. You know, they're probably doing that on Netflix. Yeah, for sure. When they need to when they need to spin up like a if they need to A B test something, if they need yeah. to you know try out a new chaos monkey or something. They need to maybe market a new service or try some new, you know, branded website or maybe they're building like a site for a show that they're building and they want to build an environment. Do you think they're going to call up you know, some DevOps person to be like, I need these servers with this amount of stuff. They say, Greg, no. I need servers. They're going to be like, uh, we want to spin up this thing for an experimental app. We imagine that we'll have about 5,000 users go. 
and we need these services. But internally, they label their services as some way, and they say we need some kind of database, whatever they use. You know, they might use some distributed database. They use that. They'll say, "I need one of those. I need to store data. I need to request things, and I need to have a CDN. I need to do this." And, and their their engineers are like, maybe they've already been trained where they're like, just go in the tool and click the things you need, and they know what those services are called. But that whole concept of building a system like that takes millions and millions of dollars. It takes a whole team. It takes a whole team to manage it to maintain it. But the point is, at some point, you're not just asking for a single server. You're asking for an entire self service environment. And even on some websites that I've worked on recently, there, there are those kind of systems. If you say, I want a new production stack, you can request one of those. Yes, by clicking a button. Clicking a button, you can request a production stack of 16 servers. Or you know, a staging stack of 8 servers or 6 servers or whatever it is. With a load balancer. Load balancers, everything's configured. With the DNS. With DNS assigned. People who aren't technical can go to it and figure it out. And they can figure it out. They enter a password. The password's always there. You put whatever branch you want on it. Put whatever branch you want. Put a completely different product. Self-service yourself a node environment. Put something else on it. Doesn't even matter. Doesn't Could be matter. in Spanish. Could be anything. Could be anything you want. But that is the kind of environment that enables teams to build things quickly. Otherwise, yes. you're dealing with one server or three servers. Yes. Integration one, two, and three, and you're dealing with whether or not those servers are up. The beige boxes. Those beige boxes. So it's really important and it's a really fun, cool topic that I quite find interesting. It is one of the things that I love to do. DevOps is one of the things I like a lot next to, you know, or with React application development. They're my two favorite things. It's so cool. Yeah. That's all I got. I don't know. I can keep going on forever, but that's it. What's, uh, very quickly here, what's, what's like the new hot thing in DevOps? I mean, the new hotness right now is there's a term for this. They always make up these stacks like Mern stack or whatever. But the hottest thing I think in DevOps and, and just hosting and stuff in general is probably serverless and running with functions like different services. But I would say one thing you have to keep in mind is what I was trying to explain earlier is that with the ease of use of some of these tools like Contentful and Auth0 and all these things, if you wanted to build a website that has really robust login that's very secure, you can use Auth0. If you want to have a content management system that provides you content to your Gatsby site with a login, you can use those two services. You could also use queuing systems. If, say, you're running some kind of batch processing for them, like when they click a button on your website, it doesn't just return an immediate response. It like triggers off a workflow of some kind. Oh, You can buy a service for that. You can rent a service or pay per request to a service for queuing. You can, you know, create Lambda functions in any of the clouds that would read from those queuing systems and do work for you. Whenever there's a new item on the queue, they do something for you. Maybe that's crunch some numbers or, I don't know, set up an order for them or do something. Or run it through a system where like someone has to actually acknowledge that the delivery has been made. You know, you can do that. If you want to have a store that's relatively cheap, you can use either Stripe or Shopify. But a lot of those things will cost more money per... There's always a layer on top. The more requests you make, the more they cost. Stripe makes their money off. The more charges that go through their system, they take a little slice. Yeah, they 2. make money 7%. on scale. Yeah, yeah. And they make money on scale because if you have you know, $1 million running through Stripe per month, 2.7% is a lot of money. It costs more to run that setup than it does Albert's guitar strings for $1,000 a month. Yeah, but so, you know, it may be useful to you, but you could use Stripe to buy... To as an integrator to 
some e-com platform like Shopify to run. You can use them both. You can use Stri- uh, Shopify's own purchasing portal or you can use Stripe, whatever you want. Um, but you can run purchases through Stripe for guitar- Albert's guitar strings through that and pay some amount of money per month. You know, you're paying them a flat rate, maybe $100 a month. And then you're paying for all the plugins on on top of uh, Shopify. Each plug, some of the plugins cost money per month. Shopify has plugins. Yeah, they have like. I a, didn't know that. Yeah, they have like. Um, I thought they just had the one same checkout that looks literally well, the same. It always on every Shopify site. It always it's not even a criticism. It's just something I noticed. It always goes through the same checkout flow. But say you want back office management of actual like like inventory management? delivery inventory management they don't include they they have like a how much inventory do you have on hand when this inventory is gone the site turns off that product but say you want to integrate directly with your factory and your factory uses some well-known you have like real time or something you have real-time stocks one widget just came off the line it's available in the store oh it's gone which is gone or you're doing like just in time fulfillment or something yeah something like that flowers i don't know could be a good one selling flowers on, on valentine's day and an order comes in and it has to run through this funnel to make sure that it actually gets delivered and you can't forget. You, know, you don't want like 9 million orders to be fulfilled and one person sitting in your factory or in your office has to send... A, I mean, I've, worked, I've seen companies where the order comes in through something like Shopify. It's inside of the fulfillment thing and then they literally print it out and hand it to the factory. Well, that's the point. I mean, like It depends yeah. on the product. It depends on the product, but imagine that it's... Imagine it's like, you know, those, there's the coffee companies that make coffee like immediately. They like, they deliver it the minute that you order it. Like the oh, minute yeah, you yeah, order yeah. it, they start brewing it and then they send it to you and it's there in like a day. Like a day or two, yep. Or whatever. Do you think that company has somebody? And they might. They might very they well. They don't have beans laying around waiting they to don't. be ordered. They, have, they don't actually initiate the creation of the bean product so imagine, until that order comes in. That's, that's just in time fulfillment. Imagine you want to save time not necessarily people but just imagine you want to save time right so when someone on your website buys a a thing of coffee you have just say you're not using shopify using something else your store will accept the order kick off the coffee roaster drop the beans in roast them the machine will drop them into a bag send them off the line box them and drop them at your shipping facility on the other side of the factory and you did nothing and it goes out the door. FedEx magic. That could happen. That's but pretty cool. That's the kind of thing you got to do. And the other thing we didn't really mention that much is that um, the other thing that I would think is uh, very interesting in besides getting rid of your servers altogether and burning the world down with just Lambda, <laughs> just happening. Uh, you know the Elmo fire. He's doing the Elmo fire. You know y- you still need people to manage your serverless infrastructure and all of those relationships with all those services and making sure they work. Sometimes some would argue that if you're managing services, you have to do more work to make sure they work. At least in monitoring. I think that's a fair statement because it, well, it's a different kind of work, right? Like, Yeah, robots might take over your job, but somebody's got to build the robots. Well, somebody's got to make sure that the robots or the robots are working. And that they're oiled and that they are running the latest software and that they're doing the job correctly. And they're playing nice with the other robots and yeah. The blue robots aren't getting into like a civil war with the red robots and <laughs> the white robots aren't like trying to kill all the humans. Like, yeah, there's a lot of there it might not be less stuff, it's just different stuff to yeah. keep track of. Yeah. And you know, that that whole world is interesting. And the other world that's really interesting is that Amazon, on top of having all those services, has something called cloud formation, which is a set of 
YAML or JSON files that you can write that'll essentially tell Amazon programmatically. Under the hood, they're just running the AWS CLI, but it'll basically tell the system programmatically, hey, I want a T2 micro instance in this YAML file. You send the YAML file to CloudFormation and boom, you have a T2 micro. It just runs it? It just builds you one. And you basically, what's called, what's called is infrastructure as code. So you essentially say, there's other providers, there's Terraform. It's like bash scripting on steroids. Yeah, there's, it's, it's uh, Terraform and CloudFormation are declarative like configuration type things. They're not languages. They're kind of more of, well, Terraform has more variables and stuff, but it's essentially a configuration file. It's very complicated with templates and all these things. Is right? it better or worse than Webpack? <sighs> I don't know. Where your allegiance Terraform is takes a lot to, to learn, but it is very powerful. The only thing that I would say, I've had a lot of experience with Terraform, um, it's get, it gets better every day. Uh, it's made by HashiCorp, the same people that made Vagrant, you know, then Packer and all these things. But it gets better every day, but it's always slightly limited by the AWS CLI. There's a lot of things that aren't really documented in the AWS CLI that just don't... It's not to say they don't work, because, I mean, that CLI works really, really, really well. But there's certain things that you can't, just by the nature of how they're created, you can't control them with the CLI. Once they're created, you can't just delete them. You know, there's like just different things that you have to know. And sometimes those things in like newer services or more obtuse services are, you know, less known and not as oftenly used. Interesting. So that I would say infrastructure as code and just removing your infrastructure for the most part with Lambda are two of the biggest things. And that in GraphQL, because GraphQL permeates a lot of these things because when you would build an API in the past, you'd build a REST API and then someone has to deal with, oh, well, how do I get the data and somebody needs to change the API. You know, GraphQL is very industry changing in DevOps as well because you essentially create a database that understands its schema and the people who are consuming the database define the queries for the amazing. most part. For the most part. It is a very amazing technology. It does everything for everyone. There is a- still someone who has to write the resolvers and has to deal with converting what comes from the databases and the other services to something that you can use. But you do that once. Well, what if it changes? Like you well, add keys. You do that once and then you let whoever wants to write the GraphQL queries do whatever they want with the queries. You, you get, you, you're writing it once to get the flexibility that you need to not have to write it over and over and over. Yeah, I mean, but there's still going to have to be somebody who understands databases and GraphQL and Node.js to change the GraphQL database. So I don't know. You're still going to have backend developers, but... Their, their application. That's why like a DevOps developer might be able to handle your GraphQL coding too. And then your front-end person can also handle the GraphQL coding. And the, well, they both can. It's and they the, talk it's about the one, it. It's the one true connector. Well, either way. So there's that. That it is a very interesting peace thing. To the force. And then your, your DevOps engineer can create the ability for a developer to create infrastructure through infrastructure as code. They can say, I have modeled my entire infrastructure stack as a Terraform file. And you can take that and create any number of those instances that you want. You can say, build me a new prod stack. With this other branch. With Sure, with, but so deploying the code is separate. But yeah, you could. You'd still have to deploy the code to it with Travis. With this A-B but, test, with this coupon well, Whatever, the, the point is you can, start, you, you can start to build these nimble systems that allow you to really provide business value to your surfers. It's pretty good stuff. It's pretty cool. I like it. I don't know that much about it. I've been kind of 
around DevOps quite a bit. I've I've watched other people do it. I've supervised it. How's that? <laughs> assistant to the branch manager. <laughs> I've been the assistant to the to the DevOps manager for quite some time. So I've seen a little bit of this. I haven't necessarily written any of the infrastructure as code or, or setting this stuff up myself, but I do find it fascinating. I it's, find it pretty fascinating. It's yeah. a pretty different set of things you have to think about and requirements versus say like your typical front end web developer. Yeah. But it is kind of the yin to the yang, right? It's the heads to the tails. Of the we didn't even talk about Kubernetes. We could literally do like four episodes on Kubernetes. Yeah. Have you ever seen, speaking of Kubernetes, have you ever seen Kubernetes abbreviated as K8? Yep. K8. That thing? K8S. I literally... Kubernetes. Who t- wants to say it? I would that today. I, I learned that today. Who wants to type it I was reading the comments of an article. They were like, oh yeah, you don't necessarily need to set up K8. I was like... My context clues are telling me that you mean Kubernetes, but I do not logically see how that comes out to yeah. Kubernetes. Some of the commands are really annoying too, like kubectl is the kube control. And you're typing that as like a pain in the ass. That's naming, the thing naming things is hard, man. Well, that's the thing that you used to be like, hey, Kubernetes cluster, give me another, you know. Naming node. things is hard. I have to come up with our episode titles every week, and sometimes it's hard. Mm. Sometimes it's hard. We got away from our like Greg hates everything pattern. That was easier. That was so much easier because the irony was like the things that I liked were the things that I hated. Well, actually, it was okay. Actually, I heard an idea where we should start putting those on t-shirts. We should just have a t-shirt that says Greg hates TypeScript. And then people are like, Greg, why do you hate TypeScript? Oh, what is the thing underneath that say public function.show? Hey. Yeah, I don't actually hate TypeScript, but you know, <laughs> did you see that article that somebody said, you know, what is the value of TypeScript? And then like somebody, I think that same guy next week had to like write a follow up article that was like, oh, I like it, but you know, it's. Uh, you know, like, I think that a yeah, it's it's hard to be very one sided about anything in technology. Yeah, it's it's very difficult because. There, it's always going to depend. It's always going to be based on whatever your particular situation depends is. Depends right? on your priorities. Depends on your team. Depends on what developers you have. Depends, depends on how much on, money you have. Depends like, you know, if your number one priority is to have a front end where you can strongly type it and follow data through your front end system, then TypeScript makes sense. But sometimes, you know, if you're already defining your query in your Mongo database, you're defining it again in GraphQL, which GraphQL now has auto schemas, but whatever. Say you're defining it in GraphQL, and then you get to your front and you're like, that model that gets returned from that API call, I got to model it again for the third time. You know, an idea for an NPM package? Universal schemas. How the hell are you going to have a universal schema? I think schema? They, they actually have things that do it. Like Joy does that. There's like, there are universal schema libraries, but I don't know. I mean, one, it, one that generates... Literally any, everybody, you, every single key, everybody's database would be exactly the same and every single key would have to be exactly the same. No, not There's universal no schemas that. for all clients. I just mean like you write a schema in this universal language that says, hey, you know, maybe it's at the GraphQL layer. Like my GraphQL function returns this thing and then it auto-generates a TypeScript object for the response. You just have like a like a return all and then it generates it from that or something? I don't know. Some some idea. Interesting some, there's probably somebody that did that that has maybe. done that, but that seems like a cool idea because then you would, like you would define the schema once and you'd say this thing stores these things and then maybe you would have some kind of configuration that says when you know when you retrieve it from mongo you ignore the hashed password and when you return it from graphql maybe hide the id what if i was an idiot when i set up my mongo and i named my hash password h password well then you would up? say ignore the h password in the config i don't know why oh, you, you would mean, configure it okay you config it i don't know just an idea as a model. Cool. think about it and send your source build it 
Shout out Sensor Source. That's our boy. Yeah, I'm going to go back to ASMR now. We love, we love that guy. Greg, we, actually, this reminds me, we do have some follow-up from last week. Oh, yeah. Actually, we have some kind of general follow-up. I have some things off the top of my head. Uh, number one, I included a link to your, your Gatsby source package that you built. So Greg is a officially published NPM open source contributor. I mean, I had one before, but sure. Thanks for this noticing. It's kind of a big deal though. Thanks for noticing that I already had one. You I mean, this I, was, well, this was the first one I saw on NPM, but I have another one. Cla- your, claps, you nonetheless. your claps go very long. You know, people don't want to hear clapping. Anyway. Though. No, but this, hold on. Before you say that. That one I found very interesting because I stopped using it on the website I was using it for. Uh, well, this because you wanted to switch. switch no, I wanted so. live queries. But it's, so, still, it's still useful. People it's still useful use to it. some people. I guarantee you somebody downloaded it today, you should probably go look. Hmm. Was it you? I don't know. But you like, should, say, say somebody wanted to retrieve only a certain subset of their repos and publish that on a website, that that could be cached. But like, goes back to the thing about Gatsby. I've learned now that I've actually built a few things, like this website correctly in Gatsby, that... If you're using their GraphQL schema calls, they get cached at build time and they never get queried again. So if you want client queries, you don't get them. Static query gets cached. Page mm-hmm. queries get cached. Anything that goes through the, the, the API layer of getting data on Gatsby gets cached. That sounds like a new package. Sounds like somebody should make a dynamic query library for GraphQL. Are you going to call it dynamic query? Because well, that's what you would call it, right? The problem is you'd have to assume that there is a GraphQL API to support that. But it really just needs to be like, and, and their, their argument like would be... Uncached or something? No, their, their argument Recache. would be like, why do you need to do this? There's millions and millions and millions of ways to request live data in a website, which is fair. But I don't know, it just seems like it's missing. There should be some some kind of understanding of like, you know, pass this awaitable object to Gatsby and it'll funnel it through a context provider to all of your components with a dynamic query. But you know, in the back end, it's kind of like how GraphQL works. In the back end, you have a resolver that has to go request the data from somewhere, and that could be anything you want as long as it's the, a promise. As, as long as it runs async. more often. Yeah. As long as it's async, you could just return any kind of async await or promise from this thing, and then it would resolve data and make it available through a context provider to any component in your Gatsby app. Sounds like maybe plugin number two. Plugin number two. Maybe somebody and, has that. I don't anyway, know. The, the thing I wanted to tell you about is that now that you are a person who has contributed to Gatsby, you are entitled to some free Gatsby swag. I learned this today. Is it already on the Gatsby site? I think that if you go search for the Gatsby store, not. like the swag store, they'll have a link yeah. for you to like, I think you just log into your GitHub so they can verify that it's you. And then they send you stuff. But is it... So I noticed that right when I published it to NPM it was immediately on their doc site, but it was missing the content. Did it finally resolve and it's all there? Let's check. Do you want to check? Yeah. I don't know. It's called Gatsby Source GitHub Feed. Greg, where would we, where do we look up the show notes for last week's episode? Publicfunction.show. Publicfunction.show. Last week was episode 12, so it'd be publicfunction.show backslash 012. Sure, yeah. This week is episode 13. Well, not this. I was saying go to Gatsby's own website. Is there Look, not a link to it from here? Wait, go down. Go up. No, it's not going to be here. 29 weekly downloads. Look at that. Look at that hockey stick growth. Well, it's amazing. Huh? Zero open issues, Greg. You're killing it. Okay, well, I don't know. But uh, go, go to Gatsby's documentation. And then, yeah, and then go to docs. Or go to plugins. And see if it indexed it.
You probably want to search for GitHub dash V. It's a GitHub dash. Oh, yeah, you're there. Wow. Damn. Hmm. It's literally almost. I mean, I, I really like the um, Gatsby source RSS feed. Was where I kind of like learned how to build this thing from because it's almost exactly the same thing because it's the same kind of resolver. But it was pretty easy. But the thing you have to consider with this is that if you want like the GitHub activity feed, it's going to get cached. So you can't use it in a site that doesn't get rebuilt all the time. So I don't know. That's why, that's why I then went back and rebuilt it as a just straight query. And then we were talking about the... Let people the handle JSON, their own the, uncaching thing themselves. Yeah, well, that's what Gatsby would say. is that like, If you want to request data on the client, then use the whatever Figure you want. It it's just a React app. It, it makes sense to do it. It does like make that. sense. But I just think it would be neat if like their documentation had a dynamic query API that happened to have a resolver in the client that kind of was like an accepted way to make an API request that had a context provider that could provide it to the rest of the app that you could act on or get at in any part of the app like you can with other data. You could webhook it with Netlify. You could webhook, you could GitHub Maybe. webhook GitHub. I don't know. You could get, you could nethook itself. Webhook well, that itself. that assumes you're using Netlify, but like, yeah, I don't know. There's just That's a, one way to do it. The other thing I was doing was with the RSS feed, I was pulling the most recent podcast, but then I realized without rebuilding Gatsby every week when the podcast publishes, it's not up to date. So I changed that to be a query and then I learned that Fireside does not have course headers on the JSON feed or the RSS, which we talked about. Probably don't want to be pulling the RSS one because then every viewer counts as like a Yeah, you don't want to hit the URLs directly. Yeah, because then they use that for analytics and stuff. But you can hit the JSON one, I believe, and get the data for the podcast, but it doesn't have course. So then I had to build the Lambda. API to just to just to get past course. Yeah, I mean that's a thing. I know that it's a uh, thing. I actually saw Dan had a conversation about this in the Slack in the Fireside Slack. I think a couple months ago, and uh, the JSON feed is a feature that is not used very much by Fireside users. Well, you know what they need to do. Well, he was talking about he's not really going to add any new features to it. They need to build. And he said he would have deprecated it by now if there weren't people that were still using it. Well, he just needs to build an API. Just build a GraphQL API or a regular API. Just build an API to query the most recent podcast and all of your podcasts. Well, he paginated two API calls. Well, his perspective is, is that he's built this service that is actually the source of all this data. Yeah. And so kind of allowing all clients to access it all willy-nilly is a little bit That's what Cores is for. Well, because technically you could always just write a lambda function to curl the RSS feed. Like you don't. Well, that's anybody though. can access anything. Anyways. That's web scraping. I mean, that that's the yeah. But you can to scrape or not to scrape. Argument. You can like, query the JSON feed right now from a lambda function on anybody's website. I mean, that's fine. But that's different from him saying, "Hey, add more sources to pull my data from." Right. This is this is well, what Twitter's is, argument has been is, for the last like five years or so for shutting down their API. Yeah, but he doesn't own the data. You are paying them to host he your podcast. Service. Okay, well, it's not that hard to host a podcast. You're paying him to make it very easy. He has a very awesome... He's, he's a great product. Great product. You're paying him for the products that you can support a podcast. You should be able to query... You should at least, if you want to... He could charge for it. He could charge an extra $2 a month for it if he wants to. But you should be able to query your data and put it on another website if you want to. I, I agree with you. I just I I agree with you, and I see where he's coming from as well. 
Maybe I can get you into that slacker. I don't know. Do you, I don't did, did, you get an, did you get an I didn't get any advice for anything. Anyway. We can talk about it later. But I don't know. Like if you want to say pull in your podcast to your your own website, that would be cool. He could literally even post like a, well, I mean, it's more work to do this, but he could host, he could even CDN it and be like, well, it's only going to be fresh when you publish a new podcast. When yeah, the RSS feed changes. Initial servers. Yeah, yeah. Then you just cache it, put it in the CDN, charge you money for it. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, there's many ways to do it. Maybe it's not his priority. That's fine. I mean, he makes a great product, so he's focused on a lot of other things. But I think it would be... And there was somebody else who asked on Twitter for the same feature. Like, hey, I want to pull this into my personal website. How do I do that? Can't do it. So, I don't know. That's it. That's all I got to say on that. Hey, Dan, we love your product. Greg would like to work for you. He has a very reasonable freelance rate. Reach out to him. I could just send him a, you know, project scope. I've got two other pieces of follow-up. Oh, yeah. So from our code editor's discussion, I was inspired by you, Greg, when you said that you like to use beta. Did you buy stuff. IntelliJ? No, I did not buy IntelliJ. <sighs> I did, however, Depends. download... I did download the nightly build of Visual Studio Code. Yeah. Which they affectionately call the Insider's Build. Ooh, I want that. It has a green logo. Green logo. Where? In the, the, like the logo in your app switcher. So you know how the VS Code one is like, like blue. blue? Yeah. All those blue parts are green. Is that cool? It's pretty neat. Uh, Can I get a black one? I don't know. I don't Night think you mode? can change the colors of the. You logo. know what you should be able to do in the nightly build, the insiders build, is you should be able to tell it what the color of the icon is, and it's just an SVG. I don't know if you can do that because it creates a dot ico, but it'd be cool because you can do it in iOS. Probably you can, can't do you it. You can do it in KDE on Linux. I can do everything in Linux. Anyways, but if you could tell it to to change the icon and maybe it just pumps out a new ico from the SVG with a different color. Maybe 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 they could just start with like maybe. give us a hex code to make your thing. I want some destiny skins on it. I want shrouded stripes. Could you imagine if that was their path of monetization? Just buying icon skin. I want a different icon skin. Yeah, they could charge you for themes. That's in what the, they do in games. In the future, all products will be free, but you'll have to pay to get the icon that you want. Yeah, in the themes. If they made you pay for the themes, if you want to make it look pretty, how much? How much would an iTunes icon theme? Come? I don't know. They don't charge you. They just you just no. But it, it, imagine a world. Imagine a world. Yeah, imagine. Where literally, worlds. every single pos- piece of software is free. You just have to pay for the icon. I don't know. You want that dark mode in Safari? Pay I mean, us that's, 10 bucks. that's the uh, that's that's the path we're going down here. That's what we're going. Anyway, I've downloaded the Insiders build. It that's has how a, Activision would run websites. That's yes, that's exactly what. It has a green logo. Yeah. One annoying thing, I do have to restart it literally every day. Because wow, they need to do a little bit more. I mean, nightly. Nightly build, essentially. Yeah, but, but you know. But you, can, it, you can test for that kind of stuff. I don't know. It's a nightly build. That's the whole point of it. Well, you know, maybe people shouldn't commit memory leaks in. So It's pretty stable. Or is that because they keep changing stuff so They're adding stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the idea. Is Why that do you they, want all that bleeding edge? Right, tell me more. Tell me more. Okay, so <laughs> I have to restart every day because they, they have a change log and it's Super robust and it's very well well documented. But they know how to make software. They're merging in new uh, new pieces of code every single day. Uh, they're they have their schedule where they're releasing like once a month that we know. It runs as like a separate app, so you can have two of them. Yeah, Visual Code. This is the Canary and Chrome one. Yeah, Canary Chromium, same same sort of setup. It's been it, it's essentially the exact same thing as the stable version. You have to restart it. I haven't seen anything. I've only been using it for about a week. But I haven't seen anything that is noticeably different or more or less stable than the quote-unquote stable one. Hmm. I would say it 
feels slightly snappier, just a little, just a tiny little bit snappier. That might be placebo effect. I don't really know. I don't have any empirical data to go on that, but it does feel very little, just a tiny little bit quicker. Just a tiny little bit. So hmm. I, I will keep our listeners up to date on what's going on there because what from what I've heard from several interviews is that the people who are writing the code for the editor are actually using the insiders build themselves to write the code. So they're dog fooding their own. What? They're writing the code for the editor in the editor? In the editor. Isn't that amazing? <sighs> Imagine that. Building a software product, having a, such a robust who, process so what did that they, your dev yeah. environment for this piece of software is actually what you used to build. I got software. a question for you. It's very meta. What is the first editor that they used to write the first version it's probably Adam. Visual Studio Code. It's probably Adam. Or maybe Visual Studio. I don't know. Hmm. Or Sublime. Maybe. Well, Consider- if they're writing it now in Visual Studio, then they probably didn't use... If they're writing it now in itself, they probably didn't use Visual Studio. Maybe they did. I don't know. Maybe Who they knows? did. Or maybe they used Adam. Adam was probably the closest thing. Somebody add us. Tell us. What's the history? So when at Microsoft, let us know. I want to know. Last piece of follow-up. This might be a thing that only I know but in our... Great Gatsby episode at the end of 2018. My hot take was that if I'm writing React in 2019, I'm not using anything other than Gatsby. Do you recall this? Yeah. I was listening to an episode of Syntax, Wes Boss and Scott Tolinsky. Awesome podcast. They're amazing guys. Guess what they said on this episode? That if you're writing anything in 2019, it should be Gatsby? They were talking about Gatsby and Next. And they literally said, and I almost jumped out of my chair when I heard this. They literally said... If I'm writing React in 2019, I'm probably using one of these. Huh. Isn't Next like a... What is Next? Is Next it, is a... It's a Gatsby without the static site building. So it has some of the same features or it's not built by the same people? It's not built by the same people. It has the same some concept. Of the, it's the same concept. It it's like a Create React app, but different. It doesn't do the entire build process that Gatsby does, but it does a lot of the other stuff. So it's it's different use cases for things. I think that... I think it was Scott that was saying that he was using it as a front end for his Meteor apps. I tried to learn Meteor once. It was pretty cool. Meteor was really good. Meteor's, I think Meteor's problem was that it was just kind of, it was either way after its time or way before its time. Because it was trying to be like the Ruby Ruby on Rails of JavaScript and it just wasn't the right time for it. Uh, I think it's still... It's supposed to be the like the one true framework that does everything in JavaScript. Yeah, but then like I remember when I used it, they were using Mongo, but you couldn't use React. There was something about it. It, it, was, it came out right. I used it when recently. React came out. Yeah, I used it like right around. It that time. originally did not have React built in. It had its own uh, templating system called Blaze, Blaze, which was very similar con- conceptually to React. But then people were going, "Can I use React with this? Can I use React with this? Can I use React with this?" Yeah, they're like. No, we have a thing. I mean, you could, but why would you? Like, our thing works. Like, the whole thing is that it's there's no configuration to it. And they had their own, like, package management system that yeah, I remember didn't that. use NPM for some reason. It was just, the idea was good. I think it came out earlier than you think. Because I think, if I remember correctly, it came out before NPM was really big. I remember playing around with it at the end, I want to say end of 2014, early 2015. And it was pretty new then. Oh, I don't know. I only used it once like four, three, four years ago. Just as I was trying to learn it. I don't know. I was watching a... Which is around the time that I just said. 
I don't know what time. I don't, you don't know. You know, I don't time. know time. I live in a conundrum of time. That's fine. So yeah. that's that's the feedback. So what's your pick? What's my oh? I want you to go first. You see a look of surprise on my face. I have I have a pick prepared, Greg. Oh yeah. Uh, the pick that I have is a book. It is a book. It is not a new book, but it's why a do book you read so much? I'm trying to be smarter than everybody. I mean, do you even have time to read? Uh, the the Kindle app. So. There's a couple of picks that are all related to all the questions you just asked. Okay, go ahead. My pick is a book called Rework <laughs> yeah. by Jason Fried and David Heinemeier Hansen, aka DHH, aka The God. Oh, yeah. He's the guy who created Ruby on Rails, right? He's the guy who created Ruby on Rails. Yeah. Him and Jason are the guys who made, formed a company called Basecamp, which basically bucked all the rules about how to build a software company. I have a question for you really quick. And they're ex- Why didn't you buy me a copy of this book? Don't I need to know all these things too? Well, this goes into the other thing. This, that's uh, related things. So let me finish about the book. So Rework okay. is an entire book about, it's not about Basecamp, the company necessarily, but it is about the concept of maybe we should rethink about how we build businesses. Not even specifically technology businesses, but businesses in general. Which has a lot to do with what we just talked about. It's an Very entire nice. book essentially about bucking the tr- the conventional wisdom of how people think about businesses, which include older style conventional businesses and also the startup businesses. I read a little excerpt for you earlier about how the idea behind startups, people think that they can ignore the realities of running a business when they are starting a quote unquote startup. Yeah, and everything just, is just, it just we're going to get so users and it's going to work. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're going to spend someone else's money until we figure it out. Yeah, those concepts mm-hmm. do not work. And Basecamp is, is proof. And Jason and DHH are both very active on social media, really shouting down the kind of workaholic culture, startup culture, um, the whole like kind of bad parts of conventional business wisdom. And they've been doing that for a long time. They run a successful business. They are kind of a model of what you can accomplish when you actually set out to build something good. So cool. that is one of the first books they came out with. They've, they've written a couple since then. Uh, I think one called Remote and then one that just came out last year called Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. But the, the one that started it all rework is, is my pick for this week. To answer your other questions, Greg. Yeah, I have lots I, of them. I did not buy What's your rework. I borrowed it from the library. What? I borrowed it from the library. Wait, it's at the library right here? It is, I borrowed it from the library via my phone. Wait, how do I do this? There's an app called Libby. Libby? Libby you have allows to be a you. member of the library? You have to have a library card, yes. Can we do that next time I come? Yes, we can do that. Cool. Because cool, we're cool. right by the library. So yeah. Libby is an app that allows you to borrow, check out books, audiobooks, DVDs, and such from your local libraries via an app on your phone. I mean, okay. I have a lot of questions, but I'm just going to go with it. Cool. So you can search the inventories of any given library. You can reserve books and say, hey, when this becomes available, check it out for me. It gives it to you. You can read it either in the app or via Kindle. How do you... Okay, one of my questions that I'm not going to let go is, how do you like borrow a digital thing? They just give it to you for... It's just because they, they can't arguably just give it to you. Right? They can't just give it to you. So you borrow it for like... I think, they, renewing I think the that the setup with libraries is that they have a certain number of copies that they can quote-unquote loan out. Yeah, yeah. From licensing reasons. Yeah. And you you read it in your Kindle, but you don't like own it, right? You you don't get a file. You get access to a file. Wait, it ties directly to Kindle? Yeah, you can read it in the Kindle. You can either read it, read the, the book in, in the Libby, Libby app, yeah. or you can read it in your Kindle app. But can you read it on an actual Kindle? Yeah. Reading it on okay, anything okay. that you have access to in the Kindle app. Sounds like app your picture should have been Libby. Well. Sounds cool. 
maybe we'll save that one for later. We'll we'll do both. Rework <laughs> rework the book yeah. and Libby the app. There's a couple other ones. There. I think there's one called Overdrive and a couple other ones. But Libby's the Libby's the good one. Uh, the interface is really nice. It's kind of very. It's kind of what you expect to see at like a kid friendly library. Mm. Kind of fun. Nice font. Do you read a kid friendly library? Are you a kid? Well, like you ever been to a library that has like a kid friendly area and has like you know ladybugs painted on the wall with like big smiling faces and so this app has ladybugs well it just kind of has that vibe Hmm. you'll see what i mean okay design is important greg yeah does it is an enjoyable design yes it's very it's very happy cool it's it's a good design so those are my picks greg yeah do you have a pick oh well i mean i thought of a couple uh just now while you're talking because i did not come prepared tell us but um one of them is the keycaps that i got oh man I'm so excited. These so, are pretty exciting keycaps. So I was like Googling keycaps. Key I don't want to go on a, the whole thing, but they are very, very hard to like come by. They are. A set. And you wouldn't think so because they're wouldn't everywhere. Think so, but they are. You go on Mass Drop and you're like, oh, there's thousands of keycaps. But it's like, yeah, they were on Mass Drop at one point in time. Their drop is no longer available. Because they are almost always limited runs and limited And they all releases. look really cool. But they you're like, amazing. I wasn't there when that happened. And all they have now is like, you know, well, right now they have the, the Tao Hao, the, uh, the rainbow. Yes, the, the gradient ones. The gradient one is up right now. It looks pretty yep. cool. I didn't want that because it's like a little bit too pink for me, but they do look really nice. Uh, so anyways, it's hard to find a set. So I was looking at keyboards, uh, like on mechanicalkeyboards.com where I buy my keyboards. And there's this company, Varmillo. Yes. It's a Chinese company. Yes, they make very good keyboards. They make very good keyboards. But one of the things they do have that's even cooler than that is they have their standard keycap set is they have an RGB one, which is like darker colors, but they have a CMYK one. It's so good. It looks so cool. The colors are like pastel. Pastel? Pastel. CMYK is the, the printer color ink. Yeah. Cyan, magenta, yellow key. Yeah, so they're like lighter more happy versions of like... They're not green. as primary. Yeah, colored. they look really They're cool. They're more in between the primary colors. It's essentially the three... If you think of the primary colors, red, blue, yellow, there are... It's like one click over variation of those, that, those three colors called cyan, magenta, yellow. And those are the three colors that are used in virtually every color printer that you've ever seen in your entire life. And that's yeah. where those colors come from. And they look really cool because all the mods are these CMYK colors. And then the base of it is like the, all the other alpha keys are white and then the other like keys on the outside are like offset dark gray. It's a nice little, uh, nice little aesthetic. They look really good. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of, a, the actual keys are affordable. They're like 69 bucks. But the shipping from China is like 30 bucks, which is fair. I mean, it's coming across the world. I mean, it is, 20, me. oh, it is 2019. These are how these things go. Yeah, there's a Space Force sniff. There's reasons why. But like, yeah. So they No one wins expensive. trade wars, folks. Well, you know, no I'm, one wins trade I'm going to buck the trade war and pay more money for the shipping for these keys because I like the keys. And, That's cool. You know, I want them. So I ordered them. Uh, I don't know when they're going to come. I don't know if I'm going to get them. I think I am, but you know. You'll probably get them. The, the buying stuff and having a ship from China used to be kind of a joke of like, whoa, good luck. Yeah. But no, these days... They seemed very knowledgeable. I emailed their support directly on their website. This lady Vicky responded, and she was very knowledgeable, knowledgeable about the keys and in English. So I feel pretty comfortable. Hopefully, I'll get them. It should be fine. Should be fine. Uh, as you would say, when I ordered my video card, hopefully, I don't get a bag of bricks, oh, box of rocks, a box of rocks. But I think they'll come. They look really, really cool. I'm going to put them on my Ducky One Two at home, 
And then the other thing, I ordered the Race 3 for work with no backlit keys. The Vortex Race 3. The Vortex. This is a keyboard Vortex that we've actually been talking about for quite a while. Three. I'm very interested to see. Yeah. Will you bring it by the show so I can tap on well, it? Because remember we had the conversation about the 60% and you're like, there's no arrows. And I was like, oh, there's no arrows. <laughs> Which I'm so I'm still to this day like, how did you not know there weren't arrows? I don't know. I wanted a smaller keyboard for work. I wanted a mechanical keyboard for work and I wanted it to be the Silent Reds. They had it in the 60%. It was like 100 bucks, 70%. And uh, it looked cool. And in my mind, I'm like, I want to do macros. And in reality, I don't want to. So then the Vortex is kind of the same thing, but it has arrows and it's still compact. And but it gives not- you the, uh, the function keys. Yeah, you have the function which, keys and the arrows. Which, so the thing about the function keys is that you don't necessarily need the function keys. But one thing I've seen with every single 60% keyboard is that by removing the function keys, it moves the escape key down one space. Yeah. What is in that location normally, Greg, uh, that you use all the time when you write ES6? Oh, the back tick. The back tick. Does the, the Vortex has a back tick. I was about to ask you that. Some of them do and some of them don't. This is the thing with the 60% ones. Is no, that. no, the, seven, the one I got. Oh, the one you got has it, yeah. Because it, so you have the full function row. So the mm-hmm. escape key is up there with the function keys. And then right below it is the tick, the tick, tick. Right next to the number one, yes. I need my tick, tick. You need it. Yeah. So I got that. The other thing I would say is the other pick that I was thinking while you're talking about your book, Enrich Yourself, another book, The Art of Monitoring. Don't know who the writer is. Can the you, Art of Monitoring. Can you Google it just so we have the writer in there? Just in case. It'll be in the show notes, of course. But it's The Art of Monitoring. It's a book about uh, monitoring a highly available structure. James Turnbell. Turnbull. Yes. Theartofmonitoring.com. So it talks about a hands-on introductory book to the art of modern applications and monitoring them. You know, it talks about uh, how to monitor a highly scalable system and it kind of goes through from the ground up why you would want to and how and what are the kind of things you would need and talks about things from like more than just a technology perspective. It's like a business perspective around why would you want to monitor your highly available system and distributed system. So if you want to buy some keys, you can order very expensively shipped keyboard keys. If you want a book, you can get a book and rich yourself. I got everything this week. I got it all. Got it all. Yep. We, got, we got lots of picks this week, guys. So we'll, we all have links to everything we've talked about in the show notes. If you'd like to read the show notes, if you'd yeah. like to listen to our episode today, this is episode... Oh, let me go back and look at this. I always mess this up. It's 14, I think. 13. Episode number 13. It's the 14th, 14th. episode. If you like to listen to this episode things. on the web, it's publicfunction.show backslash 013. Yep. You can listen to it there. Show notes are there. All of our episodes, all of our show notes for every episode, pictures of our smiling faces at publicfunction.show. It's a beautiful website. Shout out to Fireside. Thank you for the website. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to communicate with Greg on social media, he's on Twitter at Gorski. He's very happy to hear from you. I, I personally have... Photographic evidence mm-hmm. that he has now activated his notifications on Twitter. You made me. You got. I didn't. I made you. you gave me a compelling thing. reason why I should be more responsive if you're on gonna, Twitter. If you're going to be a content creator, Craig, you have to be a man of the people. You have to. It's not that I don't like the people. I don't really like Twitter. Well, that's fair. If there was another way to communicate, I, I communicate with people all the time in like Reddit and stuff. We had a. Should we have like right. a? Should we do like a Discord? If we get a lot of listeners, we should have either a Discord. I don't know about Discord because it interferes with my gaming stuff. I like Discord to be Discord. The only thing that I have in Discord that's not gaming is like the React to Flux channel, which is dope. Should we do a, like a Slack channel? 
This lacks too specific. I don't know. Something. Discord we, seems like it does, but I, I know other shows. It mixes have with my the, gaming stuff. You don't aren't there like categories? Don't you have they like have like I have like a million icons on the left of my Discord? We'll find a, we'll find some sort find of some chat way to room. check. But I think what we could do is maybe if you got like enough listeners, you could have a Reddit subreddit. That's kind. Why don't of, we just do that? Listeners, let us know. Tweet at Greg at Gregorski. Would you like us to have a subreddit? Would you like us to have a Discord, a Slack channel, IRC? All the above. Twitch. Twitch.tv slash Twitch is a thing. Yeah, we could do all the watch Albert Code all day. Are we? Do we have that? I should probably sign up for that. I don't think we have that right now. What are you doing? You're the manager of the brand. That's the true. brand manager. You have <laughs> one job. Assistant to the brand manager. You're assistant to the brand manager. You have one job. One job. Make yes. us social. Yes, that job is one job. Yes, that's exactly I what do talking. Is. You make us social. I sometimes maybe respond to Twitter <laughs> now that I have notifications. Is it appropriate for me to say I'm the executive producer of the show? You are. I don't. I don't produce anything. Uh, <laughs> I just come here. I don't talk. even know what the job. I don't know. Wow. I I enjoy doing it though. I think it's fine. I like. I like. Got to prop up your resume, executive producer of a podcast. I don't even have award it. Award winning, <laughs> award winning podcast. What are the awards you want for Peabody's? I don't know. What's the award you want for a podcast? Uh, do they do podcasts on Webby's? No, there's like a. I think you can win the journalism award. A Pulitzer? Yes, I think you what? can win a Pulitzer for podcasting. So there's your goals. There's your future. There's your end game. So, Kendrick Lamar, we're coming for you. Totally. I don't know. If we could do that, but sure. Oh my goodness, winning a Pulitzer for a podcast. Uh, what you got to wow. check? What what awards? Do you, this is your research. What awards can you win for making a podcast? And then, yeah, see, best Pulitzer podcast. Are you kidding me? Yes, it's like a thing. Well, it's going to be like. Oh, I don't know if that's... Uh, that might be a network or something. Let's look this. Uh, hmm. I don't know. I don't know. We're going to look into this because we need to get Albert a long-term goal. This is unbelievable. Greg is at Gregorski. I'm at Al Park. The show is at a public function. Hit us up there. Publicfunction.show. You can also email us at hello at publicfunction.show. I personally run that email. I will answer you. Yeah. I might even say like cheers or something like that. Albert is going to make a website called I want a podcasting Pulitzer. Oh my goodness. Should I just put that in our, uh, you could say as a joke, we could have an inside joke for anybody who listens to podcasts. It would be like Pulitzer prize winning public function. You know, I'm putting that on a t-shirt if we ever win that. A a Pulitzer. I'm putting that. If we win a Pulitzer, you can put anything you want on a (laughs) t-shirt. Go for it. That's true. Pulitzer goals. We could win a Pulitzer for doing, ASMR not even actuating the switch that's just hitting the stabilizer edge hear that rattle that's noise we don't like this though are you edging your stabilizers 
you're the one who wanted to make sure this podcast was clean. I was like, I'm 100% making No one, it. people who, they don't know what that means, the kids. They don't know what that, they're just like, what? If they know what that means, then they probably are laughing. Edging stabilizers. Yeah. If they know what that means, they're probably laughing. That sounds like a show titled me, but. No, we can't do that. No, you cannot make it the title because. Edging stabilizers? Apple will block that. I mean, it's clean though. No, it's not. Tim's going to be like, Tim Apple's going to be like, no, no. <laughs> Guys, I'm requesting an edit. Uh, I don't like the name of this one podcast title. I don't know about this edging thing. I don't know. He said he said Tim Cook Apple, but just said Cook really fast and we didn't hear it. Hmm. Let me sniff like him. I just said Tim Cook really fast. The cook came really, really quickly. And then I said, Tim, no, Tim Cook Apple. You can hear it on the edge of the... My keyboard sounds better than this. That's well, because you have reds and they're not going to make noise anyway. Well, also it's a ducky and it doesn't make Also, it does have actually higher quality stabilizers. But this was part of what I was saying before where I kind of want to build my own keyboard from scratch. That you can like buy the have higher you soldered, ends. Have you soldered anything before? I have soldered stuff a long time ago. But no, I've but seen have you videos. soldered 87 keys? It's all the same no. motion. If you mess up on one of them, if you, if you mess up on one of them, you break the board. No, you don't. Yeah, because if, no, you, you, if don't. you break the contact, I've soldered enough stuff in my life. If you if you burn the contact, you're done. Then don't burn the contact. Better get good at soldering. You watched me. I broadcasted blowing up my computer live on Instagram in front of everyone, and it works just fine. Yeah, but if you take that same level of non-time-taking, whatever the correct term is. Nonchalance. Nonchalance. You're going to burn the board. I mean, the boards are cheap, though. Wow. PCBs are cheap. The thing that, no, to be honest, though, the thing that you pay for when you're building something custom like that is usually the case. Mm. Uh, My is, case is really nice on the Ducky. It's pretty cool. They tend to be really expensive because they are like CNC machined aluminum. They come from solid blocks and they're all really just impeccably built. PCBs are cheap. What's the other thing you pay a lot for? Keycaps. Yeah. Tell me about that. That's the thing. Oh, man. Yeah. Greg, you know how we've been trying to explain to you, me and other other former coworkers of ours have been trying to explain to you the allure of the sneaker game. The velour. The allure. The, 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 the you know, yeah, people sneakers, really into sneakers. Why would you do it's that? It's literally the exact same thing. They are very specific manufacturers who have very specific colorways of very specific types of key sets and they become very hyped. They become rare and they're limited editions and people lust for them in the same way that they... Lots I had stickers. to order some keys from China. Yeah, see, so you're you're going down that road, man. You just bought your first pair of Yeezys. Oh, don't say that. No, you just bought your first pair of Yeezys. And I just bought my first pair of here. Nikes directly from China, not Yeezys. Nikes. No. Nikkei. What is this Nikkei? Nikkei. It's a common misspelling of Nike. Hmm, never heard of it. It's before. also the Japanese stock market. Index. I saw a license plate with Jepe, and it was a Jeep. Jepe. Jepe. French guy? I don't know. I don't, I don't have any response to that. Detective Jeppe. Detective Hefe? No, no. Jeppe. Jeppe? Yeah. Jeppe with a P or a B? J-E-P-E. It's Jeep with the P in the wrong place. Jeppe. Huh. It's pretty funny. Like a slang for jalapeno or something? I don't know. Jalapadango. Jal- what? <laughs> That's how I always read it. Jalapadango. 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 I feel like sometimes I do mistake that P for a G. And for some reason, I hear G. Jalapenga, jalapengo, jalapengo. Yeah, I think that's common. I think I've steadily gotten more and more dyslexic as the years have gone on. I don't know why. Were you dyslexic to begin with? 
No, I wasn't. Mm. You know what was crazy? Someone's in your brain. You know what was really wild to me and that like really messed me up is that I literally typed the word import completely backwards the other day. Man. And then you're just like, what am I going to do if I can't type import correctly? No, I typed it, not noticing it, not seeing it. Go and build out an entire class. And you're like, why is it I not run importing? The thing. I'm like, what are you talking about? The import's wrong. What are you saying? It's, it says import right there. You ever have those moments where you like are coding and you type out a word that's like a simple word and you look at it and you're like, that's not how it's spelled. There's no way. And then you look at it again and you're like, yeah, that's right. And then you Google it because you're like, that's, there's no way that word is spelled that way. I think it's right. Yeah, it looks right. wrong. Like things like sometimes you're like, you type words and I think it has to do kind of with the monospace fonts. But you'll be typing like title. And you're like, that does not, that's not how you spell title. It's like that L's in the wrong place. That L's in the wrong, something is, maybe not title, that's too obvious. But like there's some other words that like you look at them and you're like, whoa, that is not right. Because you've never written that word in a long time. Like I've noticed that too, because like you, you speak words a lot. Yeah. I don't type a lot. Like I don't write regularly. No, code is not like regular words. This but then, but then you interject, sometimes you interject like a, an Normal actual word. human words, yes. Into your variables and you're like, what is that? I've never, ty- I've never written that word before. I've never typed yeah, that word before. It's like, a, it's like a civilization that hasn't been touched by Western civilizations. Yeah, and you're like, well, I've, I've you're like why aren't that. you wearing clothes? Oh, yeah. you don't know what clothes are. Oh, you're like a completely different mm-hmm. civilization. You have your own thing going on. Okay. Yeah. It looks weird to us, but it works for y'all. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, I'm typing out these words. You ever notice that when people type things in different languages, like the common English, English is the common coding word yes. situation. Yes. But then you sometimes will get code from like a vendor who's maybe in South America and you get like the Spanish words as variables and you're like, yes. I love reading it. Oh, like... Uh, Titulo. Like Portuguese. Like Let, La Portuguese. Let titulo equals, and then it's like... What is, uh, what is uh, no pointer in Portuguese? I don't speak Portuguese. I don't know. That would be interesting. I'm sure you could look it up. You have a computer in front of you. Naming things is hard, Greg. Yeah, but then naming things in a different... Well, imagine being a person that speaks a different language and then have to name variables in English. And you're like, what? Why do I have to do this? It's pretty hard. I speak Spanish. I don't speak this language. What is this? Even if you are a native English speaker, it's hard to name things because it's not that you run out of things to name stuff. Is that you have two things that are similar, but you have to name them different things. So yeah. You have to come up with synonyms for like drop down. I have a compiler in my brain. I, all my variables are let A, let B, let C. Oh yeah, that's amazing. That's great. Yeah, I never, I never cross the variables. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I You're, would never, I never be able to do that. Matrix brain. Yeah, no, I would never actually be able to do that. It took me a long time to when I was teaching development it took me a long time to really drive home the idea that you need to name things a certain way yeah it's very important because you don't really run into that uh you don't really run into the downsides of doing that until you really run into that stuff and then it just fails spectacularly and you're you're going what the hell is a chrome mm-hmm. dev tools what is a why is why are you telling me this oh wait okay. oh i named it a i forgot <laughs> what yeah. is a2 i don't know what that is a2 Mm-hmm. Why are you saying a two is not defined? Undefined is not a function. Like what? What is happening here? Yeah, that's oh. my favorite one. Undefined is not a function. I love that. They got rid of that one though. I think they just changed it to something else. They were supposed they? to actually make it so that something comes like not that undefined is not a function, but that something the name of the function is supposed to be 
the name of the function itself is undefined. They were, is that they something were to have changed it. reacted in its error? Or is that something that Node did? It was or a browser V8. thing. No, it was, it was a it was a V8 from DevTools thing where the, the error messages weren't good. They it, were supposed to have fixed it. What about IE8? I don't know about IE8, but Chrome yeah. was supposed to have fixed it. And this was like, I, I want to say like two years ago. They probably put it in V8. And then V8 pumps out a better error. And then they were just able to display the error differently. Yeah, that makes sense. But it, did, it never made any sense because... Hey, Albert. What? Everything is C. I mean, we know that. You told us that. Everything is C++. It was one of our biggest episodes. One of our most popular yeah. Getting out there. It's pretty good. Yeah. 